Hi, and welcome to Hometown, a podcast from Episcopal Migration Ministries, the refugee resettlement and migration ministry of the Episcopal Church. I'm Allison Duvall. And I'm Kendall Martin. On Hometown, we bring you interviews, stories, and dialogue about forced displacement, welcoming communities, and how you can advocate for our newest neighbors. Thank you for listening. Today's podcast features a recording from the June 1st webinar, Welcoming Our Newest Neighbors, How Americans in the Episcopal Church Integrate Refugees into Their Communities. 2021 marks the 41st anniversary of the 1980 Refugee Act, landmark legislation that provided humanitarian protection to displaced populations fleeing persecution. The Refugee Act established the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program that now partners with nine non-governmental organizations, including Episcopal Migration Ministries, to resettle refugees and communities across the United States. In addition to this partnership between the U.S. government and civil society organizations, new organizations, such as Welcoming America, have emerged across the United States to help communities and their political, business, and faith leaders assist with the integration of refugees and immigrants. Although these efforts have strengthened the reception of refugees across the United States, the work continues to refine ways to receive new populations to assist with integration in their new homes. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. We will begin today's webinar with a prayer. Let us pray. Almighty and merciful God, whose son became a refugee and had no place to call his own, look with mercy on those who today are fleeing from danger, homeless, and hungry. Bless those who work to bring them relief, inspire generosity and compassion in all of our hearts, and guide the nations of the world towards the day when all will rejoice in your kingdom of justice and of peace, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The agenda for today's webinar begins with a brief introduction of the webinar host, which are Episcopal Migration Ministries and the Episcopal Church's Office of Government Relations. We will then give you a brief overview of refugee resettlement in the United States, and then my colleague Chris Ramon will host a panel discussion followed by an opportunity for Q&A, and then we will give you some follow-up and next steps. So Episcopal Migration Ministries is the Episcopal Church's refugee and migration ministry and is part of presiding Bishop Curry's staff. Our work at EMM includes welcoming refugees, ministering to those who are harmed by immigrant detention, and supporting asylum seekers. Our work in the EMM Engagement Unit is to engage Episcopalians to learn, advocate, and serve. To that end, we offer a number of resources, ministry opportunities, and ways to connect and network with EMM and other Episcopalians engaged in this work. You will find all of these and more at our website, EpiscopalMigrationMinistries.org, and you can feel free to email us at emm at EpiscopalChurch.org. We invite you during the month of June to join us to celebrate World Refugee Day through education, dialogue, prayer, and advocacy. And you can learn more about these opportunities at EpiscopalMigrationMinistries.org forward slash World Refugee Day. I'll now invite my colleague, Chris Ramon, to give a brief overview of the work of the Episcopal Church's Office of Government Relations. Hi, my name is Chris Ramon, and I am a consultant working on immigration issues with the Episcopal Church's Office of Government Relations. Um, OGR uh, essentially functions as 
the advocacy arm for the Episcopal Church that advocates on a whole host of issues um, in addition to immigration and refugee and asylum rights. Uh, it also advocates in other public policy areas. Um, so we're active in ensuring that the perspectives and the views of the Episcopal Church are being uh, acknowledged and incorporated into not only what the White House does, but also what Congress does as well. So uh, we're here to represent the voice of the Episcopal Church uh, and to represent the policies that it feels is the best way to advance its mission as serving the most vulnerable people in the world. So before we start our panel discussion, we wanted to provide a bit of context about refugee resettlement in the United States, which will set up the conversation that we will have today. So if you attended our webinar on May 20th, reflecting on the Geneva Convention, you will recall that refugees are individuals who have been forced to flee their homes due to persecution for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion. The United Nations Refugee Agency is charged with finding solutions for refugees. The first goal is always that refugees can voluntarily go home when it is safe to do so. The second durable solution is local integration into the country in which they first sought asylum. The third durable solution, which is only available for less than a half to 1% of refugees who are eligible, is resettlement to a third country. For refugees who are resettled to the United States, there is a multi-month and sometimes many-year process of security screening, health screening, and approvals before they travel to the U.S. Upon arrival in the U.S., they are greeted by a local office or local affiliate of one of the nine national refugee resettlement agencies like Episcopal Migration Ministries. We're grateful to have with us today on this webinar Drusella, who is actually the director of EMM's affiliate in East Tennessee Bridge Refugee Services. Now, each of the nine resettlement agencies holds contracts with the U.S. Department of State and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to welcome refugees and provide services to refugees for their first months in the United States. Each agency's local affiliate carries out these programs with their local staff, as well as with countless volunteers, community partners, local stakeholders, congregations, and other supporters. And the three primary federal programs that support refugees upon their arrival and first months in the U.S., programs that EMM carries out with our federal funders and with our local affiliates, are the Reception and Placement, Matching Grant, and Preferred Communities Program. Each of these programs' goals is defined a bit differently but all are focused on assisting the refugee family as they achieve self-sufficiency. So the reception and placement provides for refugees' needs during their first 30 to 90 days in the U.S., and it focuses on assisting refugees in achieving economic self-sufficiency through employment as soon as possible after their arrival in the United States. The Matching Grant Program is an intensive employment case management program that focuses on helping the refugee family achieve economic self-sufficiency. The Preferred Communities Program focuses on especially vulnerable refugees in need of holistic and long-term intensive case management, including for medical and mental health. And this program has a distinctive focus, taking a holistic view of refugee self-sufficiency and integration and supporting clients as they reach their own goals, moving from at risk to stable to thriving. And now I'd like to turn over to my colleague, Chris Ramon, for the panel discussion part of our presentation. 
everybody, my name is Chris Ramon again, and I'm here and excited to be able to introduce uh, a great set of panelists to be able to explore the issues around refugee integration and resettlement in the United States. Uh, our panels include uh, Jessica Darrow, who is Assistant Professional uh, Professor at the Crown Family School of Social Work, Policy and Practice at the University of Chicago. Uh, Drisela Mugurewa, uh, Executive Director for Bridge Refugee Services in Knoxville, Tennessee. And Rachel Perrick, uh, the Executive Director of Welcoming America. Um, so we're just gonna dive right into sort of the first half of this discussion is how does how the refugee resettlement integration process works? And Jessica, just to sort of begin the conversation, uh, can you provide an overview of how the refugee resettlement process works in the United States and recent trends in resettlement, kind of building on what we've already uh, you know shared earlier? Thanks, and and let me start by thanking everyone at EMM for having this webinar, and and for all of those that are attending today, um, because it's your um, commitment to receiving and welcoming newcomers, refugee newcomers, that really makes the difference in their lives and in the integration journey I'm about to talk about. So, so Chris, thanks for teeing up the conversation this way. And Kendall, thanks for the opening. Um, I want to underscore some of the words that Kendall um, included in her description of the, of the basic services provided and, and the route to resettlement. She talked about economic self-sufficiency quite a bit. And this is important because the basic underpinning of the United States refugee resettlement policy is a focus on work-first principles. The idea is that once newcomers arrive, once refugees arrive in the United States, they will become a part, a vibrant part of the communities that they're resettled into. And some of that will happen organically. Some of that will happen through school for children that are here. Some of it will happen in community. But the federal government is focusing its resources on connecting refugee newcomers through the labor market and integrating them into their communities through their work life. And the idea is here that if people can fend for themselves and have the, the means to make uh, their, you know, allow their family to thrive, that first of all, they can pay the bills and raise their children as they like, but also, you know, they can make their own economic decisions, but also that they'll experience the, the positive outcomes of being a part of a labor force community and being a part of what is a founding principle of the United States, which is um, sort of this individualistic build yourself up and keep yourself and your family going um, priority and principle. So with that, that's sort of the, the philosophy that, that underscores our integration processes. When refugees arrive, they're connected directly to organizations that help them get settled, organizations like the ones you'll be hearing about through Gisela's work. And unlike really anyone else who arrives in the United States and gets off an airplane, they're greeted at the airport and they're given a robust array of services that are focused on this early integration, on getting their family settled. If it's an individual, finding an, an apartment for that person. And if it's a family, finding a home for the family, getting kids into school. And again, most of those services are intently focused on getting people who are of working age and are able-bodied into work. There are lots of other models of resettlement, and I think it's important just to remind our listeners of this. There are models of resettlement in other countries and in other parts of the world where work is not their priority, where in fact refugees don't 
enjoy the right to work that they do have in the United States and where language acquisition or education or other components of integration are prioritized. So I wanna underscore that as well. Some of the trends that we've seen for the last several years under the Trump administration are of a declining commitment to refugee resettlement. We saw once President Trump took office, he followed through on his campaign assurances that he would diminish refugee resettlement and right away succeeded in doing so. And in the years of that administration, we really saw the, the more robust footprint of communities throughout the United States that were welcoming refugees shrink to a much smaller number. And that didn't happen because people in the country changed their attitudes towards refugees for the most part. It happened because the infrastructure shrunk, because the federal government starved it of the resources it needed to thrive. What we've seen under the Biden administration already is a little uh, hiccup at the start <laughs> um, and some, some confusion about how to get started. I don't think the question of if this administration is committed to resettlement is at issue, but how to re-engage with that commitment and how to rebuild the sector has been a question. But as we were just talking about before our webinar began, the trend is picking upward again. We're seeing resettlement begin. We're seeing flights arrive and we're seeing people um, coming into the country um, for the first time since uh, what was colloquially called the Muslim ban, um, but where President Trump, uh, President Trump passed the executive order limiting entry from many Muslim countries. We've now finally seen Syrian refugees arriving again into the country, as well as many refugees from Central African regions, specifically the Democratic Republic of Congo. I believe the, lar the largest numbers arriving now. In terms of our integration processes, I'll say only one last thing for these trends. We don't, as of now, have different resettlement um, uh, priorities. We are still focusing on getting those folks who are newly arrived, quickly situated, and then into work opportunities. And given the shift in labor market and what's happened under the COVID-19 pandemic, it remains to be seen whether that is going to be an effective strategy as it has been in years past. I think that might be a, a good start to the conversation, Chris. If there's anything else you'd like me to flesh out, of course, I'm happy to do so, but I'll defer to our next speaker. Yeah, because, uh, Drisella, we're going to talk about your experience coming to the United States uh, through the actual program. Can you tell us about the experience and what it was like actually dealing with this firsthand and, and then just how you came into your, your own current career? First of all, I want to thank God for his protection, U.S. government for giving me again a chance to live, serve, and dream, and uh, for EMM, not only for organizing this event, uh, you have been always champion for welcoming refugees, but also bringing refugees' uh, voices around the table. My journey to come to U.S. was very painful, stressful. I was scared, frustrated, and confused. Imagine to leave your country and leave behind your family, your career, and lose everything you invested in for more than 40 years. As a woman, you can imagine having your life handed to two strange men. I do not know where they are now, just I pray for them. 
I was not crazy to leave behind my 12 years old daughter. As a parent, you can imagine how I felt. But when I go to US, I remember first time when I landed in New Jersey and I find someone with a laptop and I say, can you hand me your laptop so I can send a message back home to tell them that I am alive. Uh, when I talk to my sister, the only question uh, the, my children were asking, just tell us if our mother is alive. Thank God I am alive still today. The second moment which was very touchy is uh, seeing um, bridge refugees, case managers coming to welcome me at the airport with uh, a delegation from Northside Christian Church. I remember when we got to the apartment, the food was prepared and uh, the bed was made and it was wonderful. We had good discussions. And then since I was disconnected from my church for almost nine months of hiding, my first ask was to be reconnected to my church. And then the following day, they did take to my church and uh, I started to get connected, how to ride the bus to go to the church, how to even engage other community members uh, to go to church. Then when I started to work, I started my work within 45 days and I was very grateful for that. I can make my own money uh, to have an income, but on the other hand, as a former member of the government and parliament, starting with uh, $6.55 an hour was disturbing and shocking. And then uh, I started to just seek for other opportunities because I felt like I was underutilized and uh, intellectually I was freezing. And um, I was disconnected to the world. And when I was talking about having internet, some people were considering this as a luxury. And then I started to find jobs in my neighborhood. I can tell you, I did work 14 hours a day so I can sustain my family when they come back. Uh, I, I even used to, to go to uh, community leadership training using my pay time off because my employer said that uh, they couldn't support my training. I became a community leader. And then 2015, so I did arrive in America in 2009. In 2015, when Bridge was looking for an executive director, they did ask me to come on the panel of interviewers and they didn't find the director they wanted. And I said, can I apply? I have managerial skills, I can mobilize resources, but some people were discouraging me to go to work in that organization because they were financially unstable. But I was telling them that I, I have confidence that I can build bridge as vibrant organization. And before that time, I went to a seminar when somebody told me that uh, Upward Global help refugees who are skilled to regain their career. But I was on the fifth uh, age, uh, fifth year age in, becoming, in, in being in the US. So I was almost disqualified. And uh, they say, I say, hey, I have this position uh, uh, can you help me? They, they, they helped me, they find a mentor. I did a presentation, I presented the vision and then I became a director. Uh, what I can tell you is that uh, uh, 
refugee resettlement is not only a life-saving uh, program, but uh, we also, as refugees, we add value to the community. We have skills we are bringing, we have um, social, cultural, and economic values we are bringing, and this is what many people do not know. But uh, I, I am here and I am glad that bridge situation was not uh, very good financially well to us. Now I, I can tell you that we are one of the vibrant organization. When I started, I think we had uh, less than 11 employees, now we are 20. So I wanted to show that I have managerial skills, I can connect to the community and I had a story to tell. So through storytelling and connecting to the community, explaining the public and private partnership, bridge rose again and we are a sustainable and vibrant organization today. And I'm grateful and humbled to lead this organization. No, thank you for sharing that. It's uh, always important to bring in those voices and the perspectives of people that go through that. Um, you know, Rachel, so we've we've talked, we've got a perspective of somebody who went through the process. Um, we've talked about sort of the, the system that brings in individuals through um, to be able to resettle the United States and, and seek safety. When, as we're kind of resetting the refugee program with this new administration, uh, what's the role that everyday people can play in order to ensure that this process is successful as can be? Because you, you know, Welcoming America does a lot of this work, you know, really sort of galvanizing communities become more welcoming. What's, what's the role that, you know, folks who are listening to this, that they can play? Well, first of all, a huge uh, thanks uh, for the opportunity to be part of this conversation. And Drisella, thank you for reminding us in such a poignant way of the power of refugee resettlement on so many levels. And I think, you know, as we're having this conversation, I'm just uh, so grateful for the work that you do, for the work that uh, that EMM does, um, and thought I would just share a couple of stories uh, from our work and from my own life um, that I think reflect what that power is uh, by way of getting to your question, Chris. Um, and the first is also a, a, a deeply personal story. My own family came to this country as refugees uh, at the end of World War II. Uh, they were helped by um, what is now a resettlement agency. So I know how important this work is and, and what it means. Uh, and the picture that is behind me is actually their arrival at Ellis Island. Um, they were not greeted at an airport, um, but they were greeted by a cousin of my grandfather um, who turned to my uh, mother, who was a, a baby in arms at that time, and said to her, this will be your America too. And I think, you know, on our on our best day as the United States, on our best day in the in the refugee resettlement program, that is the the ideal that we can aspire to live up to. That you can be from anywhere in the world of any race, uh, religion. You can come to this country, uh, and you can not only find a job here, you can not only find a community here, but this can be the country that you claim as your own too. And when we say creating a welcoming community. Uh, a place where everyone belongs. This is what we mean. It's not just about being a sort of perpetual guest or, or stranger in this country. It's, it's about coming into the home and, and really building a, being a builder of that home, uh, really helping up, uh, putting up its walls uh, and you know, feeling that sense of investment and ownership of it. Whether you are a refugee, whether you are new to this country or whether you have lived here all your life, because the fact is there are many people who have lived their whole lives in this country um, that also uh, you know, are are not welcome, don't belong, uh, and are not full participants in our 
democracy and in our communities. And that is really what we're trying to get to at the end of the day uh, in, in the way that we define success. And I think um, one of the things that I'm so grateful to EMM for actually is my second story, which is the story of my going to uh, one of your conferences uh, nearly a decade ago. And for the first time hearing the story of Boise, Idaho. Now, Boise, Idaho, uh, had long been uh, a, a site of refugee resettlement, uh, and in general, things were going pretty well until there was an economic downturn. Um, and that really became the fodder for some community backlash against refugees and questioning of, you know, should we really be doing this? Can we afford to do this? And, and all sorts of uh, zero-sum narratives began to, to take hold in that. Uh, and some community leaders got together and said, uh, and this is a quote, how do we meet uh, scarcity with an attitude of abundance? Really this beautiful moral uh, call to action. Uh, and they came together to create what was really one of the country's first uh, strategic welcoming plan, strategic plan for uh, building the community's capacity, uh, not only to make refugee resettlement go well, but really to be a, an inclusive community overall. Uh, in a way that would uh, express that value of, of being welcoming. Uh, and uh, they were able to turn that around. Uh, Boise became uh, a very successful place uh, and continues to this day <laughs> to be a very successful place uh, as a welcoming community. Uh, my organization, Welcoming America, certified it uh, as one of the, the nation's first welcoming cities a few years ago. And that was really due to the community uh, coming together through that process uh, and continuing to come together through an ongoing process uh, to invite people from all across the community to be a part of refugee resettlement uh, and to be a part of really creating a welcoming community, um, reducing the barriers in a, uh, in a systemic way, reducing the barriers that people face to uh, participating civically, socially, economically, building bridges between neighbors. Neighbors United is the uh, collaborative that uh, continues that work along with the, the city of Boise and many, many partners. Uh, and this is really what it takes uh, to make this go well and to really live into that promise, a, a whole community approach. Um, so, so when you ask the question, uh, what can I do as an individual, there is a whole lot that you can do to be a voice um, for that narrative of abundance um, and to participate in your own community's process to make sure that uh, refugee resettlement is a, is a whole of community endeavor and, and really about uh, ensuring that everyone can belong. And I know we'll get more into the details of what that can look like uh, in the conversation. Yeah, um, so we're going to pivot to round two before we go to the Q&As. Um, so, you know, Jessica, you were talking about, you know, how the United States approaches its model of refugee admissions and integration. It's very different from, say, like the centralized European model of, you know, having a lot of government funding, but maybe not access to labor markets. It's a completely different approach. Um, but that being said, you know, obviously we, we, we are a leader in, in refugee um, admissions and integration, but how would you improve the reception and integration of refugees into the United States? Sort of what are policy recommendations that you would make? Uh, well, maybe I will begin to answer that question by, by centering some of what we've just heard. Uh, for the last decade or, or more, I've been doing research with refugee resettlement agencies and and. Over and over again, what I hear in that research and what I learn is that the voices and the perspectives of those actually going through the refugee journey, the people who are impacted by the program, have lots to say because it's their lived experience about how we might improve the program. And so rather than just telling you what I think we could do, I would like to say that my 
perspective on what I think we can do is informed by really attentive listening to, over the years, people who have come through the program and making sure that proposals feel like they would work for refugees. Now, it's not, we don't have a monolithic group. Refugees come from all over the world. They have different religious identities. They have different ethnic and, and racial and national backgrounds. And, and then different cultural norms that they bring with them. And so there won't be one policy that will work for all people because, again, none of us humans are all the same. And so I, I would say, first and foremost, what I think is really important is that the Refugee Act of 1980 and even the proposals to improve it through the Refugee Protection Act, which is legislation that, that our viewers can learn something about, it's proposed legislation in the Senate. These policies provide a standard package of um, services available to refugees, services and benefits. What I think would be really wonderful is if we thought in a more responsive way. Not every refugee will be able to take up work as soon as they arrive. Some folks may be dealing with trauma. Some folks might choose to pursue, uh, as Josella said, changing and, and um, adapting their credentials to the U.S. labor market. And that might take some further education or some time or some certificate work. There may be lots of reasons that work isn't the first priority for a newcomer. Another thing we contend with is, as I sort of briefly mentioned, people come with varying degrees of trauma. Not every refugee who comes has experienced trauma. We shouldn't assume that, but some have. And so the provision of mental health services in a robust way in the very beginning might be important for those folks. Some folks may prefer to stay home with their young children and make sure those children are thriving in school. So I think of a policy that is more responsive to the needs, to individual and different needs that newcomers have would be one of the best policy changes that we could see. In addition to that, I would say that the sort of work that Welcoming Communities is doing, the sort of work that Welcoming America is doing, that Upward, Upwardly Global is doing, work where we really think about the communities in which people have landed and how we draw on the assets of those communities, how we recognize that, as Rosella said, refugees make their communities even richer and more vibrant because they bring themselves and their experiences to that place. So what is that two-way conversation looking like? How do we raise and accentuate both parts of that conversation, both what the refugee brings and adds and what the community can offer. I think some sort of community-centered approach that others on this call probably have ideas about would be a second and really wonderful addition to bolstering the refugee resettlement program. Um, the last thing I'll say, and again, happy to talk more about this in Q&A, is that there are three pieces of legislation I think are interesting. Two are very connected to each other. There's the Grace Act and the Lady Liberty Act both of which try to raise the minimum number of refugees who come per year to 125,000 a year. In addition is the legislation I've already mentioned, which, which is the Refugee Protection Act, which would raise the, the minimum to 95,000, but also proposes a whole bunch of improvements to our asylum processes and to how we think about unaccompanied minors who arrive at the border. So I encourage participants, if they're interested, to learn more about this legislation. Um, but I myself find these three pieces of legislation hopeful in that they show there is the political will to potentially change and improve the program in ways that benefit newcomers. Great. Um, Drisella, thinking about your own personal experiences and everything that you experienced when you're coming here and then the work that you've been doing since then, 
um, through your organization, the same question is to you, how could the United States improve uh, the reception and the integration and welcoming of refugees uh, in the communities across the country? I think that, uh, I, first of all, I'm grateful that um, myself and my children, we finally uh, I have been reunited and I'm thankful that U.S. gave me that opportunity to see my children again and to see how they grow and uh, being separated from family and not be able to talk to them for one year was not uh, an easy uh, way, but I, I remained hopeful. And uh, with the support of the welcoming community, we managed to, to, to make it happening. So I think that um, how people can support um, this program and uh, be hopeful about other ways to go, uh, I think, um, it's just, uh, you think about human way of welcoming people and uh, how would you treat yourself when you are in this kind of environment? And I'm very grateful really that uh, US has this program and they, they facilitate the family reunification. Not seeing my children for one year, don't think that it was not, it, it was an easy thing and then to, to be able to talk to them. But uh, I'm thinking that, um, when we are moving forward uh, with the refugee resettlement, I think we have to work collaboratively with the welcoming communities and uh, uh, learning about refugee stories because sometimes uh, people do not understand well why people flee their countries, how uh, they come here and what are the socioeconomic values they are bringing to our communities. And we work uh, as a community and those values America has, have to be preserved. And uh, refugees are also bringing a lot of uh, values to our nations. So when you are separated from your family, uh, it's not an easy thing, but when you have a chance to be reunited, uh, you just um, thankful, you are thankful, but refugees also are bringing a lot of socioeconomic uh, and cultural values uh, enriching our communities. And, um, I'm thinking that uh, working hand in hand with uh, uh, local communities and families, we are enriching each other. And I'm hopeful that uh, uh, COVID-19 will go away and we'll be able to, to, to welcome more refugees. But it's beneficial also for um, uh, citizens and residents because they are bringing cultural and economic values uh, to our nation. There is a win-win in terms of uh, welcoming and resettling refugees. And I'm very grateful that America gave me a chance personally to serve and uh, welcomed uh, and facilitated the family reunification because there are many programs in this and then uh, also asylum. Asylum seekers also have that chance uh, to, to have protection. And this is something we are very thankful. Um, and uh, the contribution also people are bringing uh, to this nation are enormous. And uh, I think we'll uh, be able also to, to respond to the questions I have been people seeing in the chat. But uh, um, I, I wanted to tell you that as a parent, uh, it was not an easy way to not see the children and not speak to them for one year. 
but I'm very grateful that America facilitated the family unification. And now um, the children are giving back in different sectors of accounting, supply chain. Uh, one is a nurse and, and uh, I can just be grateful. And also I want to be grateful for uh, people who participated in, in this um, uh, resettlement program. And we are hopeful that uh, it will thrive and we can welcome more refugees and uh, they can live with uh, citizens uh, to make our economy, uh, our economy and our communities uh, more prosperous. Thank you. Um, Rachel, so I've known you for almost 10 years and we've always had this ongoing dialogue of integration, uh, immigrant integration metrics. Um, and it seems like what success is has evolved and become, I think the field has seen it become far more nuanced. There's a more depth. And I think that the way you measure and you assess what success looks like for refugee welcoming, which is not necessarily integration, but welcoming, what does that look like? How is it sort of a shift from integration to welcoming? What does this success look like? And how can folks be involved in it? I know we were talking about that a little bit earlier. So if you can just kind of hit on those two themes of, I think a more nuanced and in-depth view of welcoming as opposed to integration and how people can play a role in that. Well, I think one of the reasons, first of all, thank you, Chris. And yes, <laughs> a spirited debate over many years. <laughs> the quest continues. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons why it feels so important to center this conversation about success in values um, is because, you know, at the end of the day, the, the measure of our success um, really comes back to what are the things that we care about as, as a community, as a country. Um, I'm just reflecting on Drisella's comment about being separated from her family. I can't imagine the anguish of that. And yet we are having a conversation, you know, that started uh, since the beginning of time, but particularly in the Trump administration, um, about whether what our what our immigration system should look like and the extent to which uh, families staying together matters in that. And I think it's extremely important that if we are people who believe that you know our success as human beings is rooted in having a network of support around us is is rooted in uh, having our families around us that we preserve that as a value. Um, at, you know, in the way that we talk about immigration, the way we think about it, um, and then in the practice of it in in our laws and norms. Um, and so, you know, I just, I, I would encourage uh, any of you who are on this call um, who are involved or thinking about being involved, you know, one of, I think, the most powerful roles that, uh, that people who don't do this work professionally every day um, can add is really bringing your own communities back to this conversation about values. What, what matters to you? What does welcoming mean to you? <laughs> uh, what are the values that you want to hold on to and making sure that our uh, you know, that our refugee resettlement program, that our immigration system reflects those. For us at Welcoming America, um, one of the ways that we have codified that uh, into some things that can be measured um, is through a document that we call the Welcoming Standard. And we spent um, a number of years going out to um, all kinds of people, impacted communities, professionals in the field and saying, what are the set of things uh, that, that, is, that are within the scope of a community to do uh, that would make it a welcoming place? Um, and uh, you're welcome to visit our website, welcomingamerica.org. I'll 
um, try to pop it into the chat later, but the welcoming standard really encompasses the answer to that question. We're updating it now, but it includes things like um, having some infrastructure within local government. Uh, the social contract of an immigrant nation <laughs> should require uh, some investment from government um, to support success in this um, at a national level, at a local level too. Um, it it's about looking at different systems in the community, whether it's schools or a workforce system, public transportation, to say, how can we really reduce the barriers that people might face uh, to, to being able to access those systems, whether it's language, uh, making things accessible in people's language has been enormously life-saving during, um, during COVID uh, for all of us. Um, and, you know, and as soon as you begin to pick away at what some of those things might be for somebody that faces potentially a number of barriers, you start to see the barriers that everyone in a community might face. One of the things that happened uh, in the process of Boise going through its action plan was identifying that um, a lot of uh, refugee families um, who wanted to work couldn't get to their job because of the public transportation system. And so they, re, uh, they, they looked at that and they uh, made it a more accessible one. And that benefited not just uh, those particular individuals, but really the community as a whole trying to get to work. We need to be sensitive to that. Um, and then it also looks at things like intergroup relations. How are we really helping people in the community, again, come to know each other as neighbors, whether that's over a soccer pitch, a meal, uh, in the organizations we work in, we can all play a role in that. Um, and that is just uh, a fraction <laughs> of some of the, the components of, uh, of what success looks like in terms of creating a welcoming community. Again, not just a welcoming community uh, for newcomers, but really for people who have uh, lived there all their lives as well. Great. So now we're going to switch to question and answers. I'll try to get through these in the next uh, 10 minutes. So uh, we'll, we'll try to get through as many of them as possible. Um, Jessica, so here's a technical question for you. Um, Eileen is asking about that the current governor of Texas said he will, now, he will not allow the resumption of refugee resettlement in Texas. Now, if you remember, this happened in 2015 at the height of the year, well, at the it's still ongoing, but at the height of the European migration crisis and concerns at that point that you also started seeing similar steps. Um, does, do governors and legislatures have the final say as to where um, refugees can be resettled or is it just simply federal policy that takes precedence? Uh, it's, a, it's actually a very good question. And the answer isn't completely straightforward. I can start by saying refugee resettlement is, a, is both a very, very local and federal initiative. The um, State Department is responsible for bringing refugees over to the United States from wherever they are departing from. And local communities ultimately, as we've heard from Rachel, resettle the newcomers, right? You, you resettle in a neighborhood. You don't resettle in a state. Governor Abbott isn't resettling anybody. But yes, we have had both uh, Texas and, and also um, several other governors in 2015, 2015 um, said that they would not want to resettle anymore and, and threatened to end resettlement. And in fact, there was quite a bit of, of legislation and action in the courts around that. Governors don't have the right to say who can and can't enter their state. The fact is, is that we have freedom of movement in this country. We can cross borders from state to state. And again, the federal government is responsible for bringing refugees to the United States. What governors can do, on the other hand, is decide not to implement state-run programming, in which case we rely on the nine national resettlement organizations and their network of local community offices throughout the country to implement the federal policy. 
and that is a, a doable, workable, and in fact, sometimes quite smooth system um, bypassing the functionality of the state. Um, however, in short, the governor is is um, blustering and, and speaking to to the base, I believe, um, and really having, I think, more of a discussion about the border and what's happening with asylum seekers in at the border, um, and instead is is trying to reframe that conversation about all immigration, um, hopefully unsuccessfully. I don't know if that completely answers the question because, as I say, I think it's quite complex. Yeah, and it's it's kind of unclear. You had the Trump era policy that required states and localities to sign off on that uh, on the resettlement, and then that was you know held up by le uh, litigation. So it's it is an unclear unsettled area of law. Certainly, one quick technical question from David on this: um, So do refugees choose communities where they go, or are they assigned? If assigned, by whom, and how much do individual contacts within various communities? How does that influence assignments? Just a quick add on to that. Uh, I'll, I'll try and be very brief. I actually teach an entire class on this because it's also complicated. But as, as was suggested earlier, when, when people have relatives in the United States who, are, who have come through the refugee um, resettlement program, they can resettle where their, where their relatives are and most likely will. The State Department and the Bureau of Population, Refugees and Migration manages a resettlement program on the ground and really does try to get relatives to relatives because they understand that if, if refugees arrive and go to um, Maine and their, their relatives are in Washington state, they're going to end up needing to move to Washington state and they'll have to transfer for themselves all across the country. So they try to get relatives to the same places if someone arrives after the, the first principal arrival. But if a refugee arrives that doesn't have a relative, that person could end up in any number of the states and localities that resettle refugees. And the answer is the State Department manages that process with the nine national resettlement agencies. And they, the, the term is called allocation, they distribute those refugee newcomers out to the management of those nine national agencies. And in turn, those national agencies will ask their local community offices throughout the country, do you have the capacity and resources to really resettle and, and welcome these new arrivals in a holistic and robust way? And when the answer is yes, that's where they'll resettle the newcomer. Okay, great. Um, so another question that we have here, um, and Drisal, I wanna bring you into this. Um, Thomas is asking, what are the biggest barriers, misunderstandings, or miscommunications that can emerge between resettled refugees and churches um, that try to assist with them? Uh, how can you sort of reduce the barriers to long-term welcome in our parishes? What about your own personal experience do you think can speak to this? I think you're, you're mute. Uh, sorry. Uh, the refugee resettlement is a public and private partnership. So uh, the government cannot do it by itself. Uh, we have uh, some churches who are working to help to resettle, to, to resettle refugees. And um, when you come underground, uh, we are trying to find more sponsors as soon as possible because it's a public and private partnership, the resettlement here in the US. And uh, when you... Uh, 
before you arrive, for example, uh, now when we are preparing for uh, refugees to come, we explain to the communities uh, who are the nationalities that are coming, what are the specificities uh, related to the cultures, what is the food they will drink, what really we want to make them feel uh, home when they get here. And then we will go to uh, welcome them, we provide interpretation services. So we want to, to treat them the way we want to treat ourselves. And uh, um, uh, the goal is normally to find like, if you have a family and we provide interpretation services, there is no question that uh, if you come, you don't speak the language. Uh, we provide interpretation services. We, we prepare the cultural appropriate meal. So the first welcoming meal is very important. So we want you to feel that you have people who care and who know the culture. And we provide interpretation services also. Uh, and, and we try to uh, find a way to integrate them in the community as soon as possible. So the language, uh, the, we, we use interpretation services. When you go to a doctor's office, you have to find people who will welcome you and who will speak your language. And uh, the good thing is that like, the refugees themselves, after integration, now they become uh, uh, welcomers and they can help others also to welcome and then to prepare like cultural appropriate meal. We know that the first meal, the first night in any country where you get is very important. So we, we make sure that the case managers, the interpreters, or the team and the welcoming uh, communities, uh, they work together to make sure that when you come, really you feel like home and you have that night of welcoming and they go to welcome you uh, at the airport with interpreters uh, and we try to provide all and put all the teams together. So just not for the first week, but they accompany you on your way to resettle in a new country. It, it, it does take time. Even if I spoke English, I can tell you that it, it took me probably seven years to feel like I was really fully integrated and oriented to know what I can do. So I, I'm glad that the welcoming communities, the case managers and other people and then we teach them how to learn English, how to navigate the transportation system. So the program is uh, is uh, built in a way that it's integration. So you can do the health, the community, the personal development, all things are done together. And I am very grateful that uh, the public and private partnership works well to make people feel welcomed and uh, integrate in their new communities. And also they just don't take they give back, they, they have languages, they have food, they have culture. So when they come, you really feel like you just start to contribute the first day when you come. You can be uh, scared maybe, or just disoriented because of time zone, but the case managers, the welcoming communities, the churches and other uh, groups are there to help you, to welcome you and to feel home. Yeah, and I believe, I think, uh... New American Economy, which is another organization that does some good research on this, has put out some research on the contributions of refugees to local economies. I can, maybe I'm, I'm, maybe I'm being incorrect there, Rachel, Jessica, but um, I know that they do they have done some good work on that. Um, Rachel, I'm going to ask you the last question before we wrap up um, with from Catherine. What are some practical ways we can counter? that mentality of scarcity versus abundance conversation. I think you're touching on that, on that a little bit. Um, you know, how can you do that um, at the local level? 
Um, and even thinking about federal policy, how you can you know think about this, because you always try to see um, some folks try to say that we just don't have enough resources to support refugees in comparison to other populations in the country. And of course, the thing is that we, you know, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. So I want to give you that last question uh, with that framing. Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, one thing we can do is um, is be a little bit more discerning about where some of those narratives are coming from. And in many cases, um, I think Jessica alluded to um, some of their uh, origins and being used for political fodder. And, uh, you know, and there have been uh, countless reports <laughs> around how uh, messages, for example, in the last um, big anti-refugee push, um, a real concerted effort to portray uh, Muslim refugees as as dangerous to communities. So, you know, dangerous narratives taking root, uh, I think is um, something that we can all just be more aware of um, and, and forceful encountering. And at the same time, also recognize that it is uh, human and natural, um, especially, you know, if you are um, under duress uh, <laughs> and experiencing scarcity um, to ask the question, you know, but what about me? Um, that is a very natural question um, for many Americans to be asking right now. And I think um, refugee resettlement hasn't always had a good answer for that um, and often is left uh, trying to answer questions about, well, you know, why, why do these refugees get public benefits and all of this supporting case management and I don't. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, part of the answer to that can be, you know, the, the challenges that refugees are facing are really structural barriers that many Americans are facing and particularly facing, uh, you know, um, because of structural racism, because of barriers on the basis of other, um, you know, factors of identity. And so when we really work to create uh, communities that are equitable, that are places where everyone can participate and we, and we work systematically to reduce those barriers, they can be places <laughs> where everyone can thrive, inclusive of refugees. And I think there is much more that we can do to uh, to make that the case for really for all Americans in inclusive of refugees. There are also um, many, many toolkits on Welcoming America's website around um, communication strategies uh, to deal very specifically with some of those narratives and also intergroup relations work. Um, really, again, um, creating opportunities for people to get to know one another, understand that they share the same values, work on projects uh, on equal footing where they can uh, you know, see for themselves, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that, um, that there is so much to be gained, um, to be gained from, from their new neighbors. Uh, so just a few, uh, ideas, and I recognize that this is all very difficult work and many questions in the chat that I would be happy to, uh, help answer after this webinar, if that would be useful. Uh, Thank you for all for your, for your great questions. Obviously, we'll try to get, uh, to them if, if we have some time, um, to email them out. And uh, but just thank you all for for listening to us, bringing this, you know, your your interests and your attention on this really important issue. Um, and I'm just going to turn it back to um, our hostess. Thank you so much, Chris. So real quickly, I just wanted to go over um, of what you can do after this webinar. So first and foremost is that is continue learning and sharing. Um, both EMM and OGR offer many educational resources and opportunities for you. Uh, we also invite you to advocate through the Episcopal Public Policy Network, and you can find out all about that and sign up to participate in those action alerts at episcopalchurch.org forward slash OGR. Uh, we also invite you to serve. There are many ways that you can get involved in this ministry. We would love to hear from you and help you make those connections. Um, and lastly, one of the most tangible ways that you can help this ministry is by making an encouraging 
financial gifts in support of our work. And real quickly, there are a number of ways to contribute to EMM's ministry online, text, call. Um, you can also help spread the word and fundraise on our behalf using peer-to-peer online fundraising platform, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, and also encouraging leadership to designate a special offering for EMM. And we really appreciate the extra step of your faithful support of our work. And I want to thank you all for joining us today, especially our wonderful panelists. Uh, we invite you to be in touch with both EMM and the Episcopal Church's Office of Government Relations. We'll include all of this contact information in the follow-up email, as well as a link to the recording. And we will also include the website that Rachel shared with us of the welcoming standard. So thank you all so much for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Listeners, thank you for joining us for today's episode. For more resources and opportunities from Episcopal Migration Ministries, be sure to visit EpiscopalMigrationMinistries.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we are EMM Refugees. Support the Ministry of Welcome by making a gift to Episcopal Migration Ministries. With your help, we will continue to welcome and resettle refugees to communities across the country, offer support to asylum seekers, and create community for all of our immigrant siblings. Visit EpiscopalMigrationMinistries.org forward slash give or text hometown to 91999. Our theme song composer is Abraham Awinda Akondo. Find his music at abrahamawinda.bandcamp.com. Until next time, peace be with you and all those Central Kentucky, sipping on some chai tea.